Today's determined attackers easily bypass even the most advanced network defenses. Trying to ramp up staff to detect their back doors can cost thousands of dollars and take months, even years. With Active Countermeasures AI Hunter, we enable junior analysts to detect even the most advanced back doors in a matter of hours. Sign up for a demo and purchase our product today by visiting activecountermeasures.com forward slash PSW. Active Countermeasures. Make every analyst a hunter. Endgame automates the hunt for both known and never-before-seen adversaries in enterprise networks. Built on unique knowledge on the adversary's tools, techniques, and tactics, Endgame's centrally managed agent prevents, detects, and responds to advanced adversaries in the earliest stages of the kill chain without prior knowledge. Endgame. Automate the hunt. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. This is the security news for this week. I want to start by talking about malicious Docker containers. There were 17 containers deemed as malicious that reportedly have been downloaded over 5 million times and ended up mining, as a result uh, of this, $90,000 in Bitcoin. Uh, in No, it wasn't Bitcoin. Sorry. It was Monero? Monero? Monero. Monero, I think. Something Monero. like that. Anyway, some kind of cryptocurrency. Ethereum, maybe? <laughs> What um what containers were they, Paul? Uh that's a really good question. They didn't I don't think the article really stated exactly which ones they were. Because I actually so this is, no longer this is totally new to me. I didn't actually read the article. So my bad. Um let me actually take a look at, at this real quick. It was Fortinet that found the containers and published a report. Um yeah, it was Mon Mon Monero. Monero. Monero, yeah. thank you. Uh, 17 malicious containers. Each of the images advertise themselves as tools for popular software such as Apache Tomcat, MySQL, and Cron with a capital C. Why would you do a Cron container? Yeah, I, is that like Cron? Like, well, it's a capital C. I'm assuming is that Cron, like not Cron job, but I guess. I mean, oh, that's, I, wouldn't put it, I wouldn't put it past anybody. I mean, you should you should have services separate. I'm not sure that necessarily qualifies as. I think Cron needs to anyway. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So that was uh, anyway. Anyway. So, so so Paul, was this um was this uh, were they found in like Docker Hub or yes, something like that? They were that? in Docker Hub. Okay, so what this would have been then is it would have been <clears throat> um, uh, a repository that was uploaded. Uh, as an additional repository by someone like myself or a private user Correct. that has made that public, right? So um, effectively what happened here is it wasn't the base MySQL container no, no, that no, was no, actually no. vulnerable. It was someone uh, it else's was, MySQL yeah, was, container. I see, hands, so, so, I see hands on the door behind me, which is really funny. And the door's moving. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got ghosts, Paul. Congratulations. <laughs> Somebody wanted to get to the bar, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> I mean, that stuff's so, important. Anyway. So, yeah, this was... Yeah, people uploaded rogue containers. If you give it a popular name, uh, it, it people could download it and uh, run it and then be mining your, your cryptocurrency. I mean, this is a, a, a scenario we've talked about in the past. I don't think... It, the shocking thing is, why didn't Docker Hub pick up on this? I thought yeah, they had scripts that looked for this type of stuff, right? Yes, and so that's the other thing that I, I my understanding was the same as, as yours, Paul, which is 
any container that makes it to the public Docker Hub repository sure. should, in fact, be getting scanned by some sort of, um, I don't know if it's a DAST or a SAS solution. Something. Or, I, I, yeah, I don't what, know what they're scan. Well, obviously, it's something that has uh, limitations to what it can scan for, and someone figured that out. So as yeah, is it, often the case, the, the root cause here needs to be investigated. You know, the, the problem was not that there's these malicious Docker containers. Correct. The question is, how did they get there in the first yes. place? How, how were they allowed to be put up there? Perhaps right. there will be further reporting. Mm. And or in not. Life, <laughs> right, right. Or Maybe not. this is dead and, and we can all go home. Um, my speculation here is that it, it probably is um, a, the problem of like a walled garden, right? Like, so they don't have uh, a good way of actually confirming exactly what's wrong with the containers when they, they get pulled up. So it could have been kind of like a, a secondary payload, right? So you run the container it recognizes that it's it's actually being tested or assessed in some way, so it doesn't present the behavior that is sure. malicious, That's which is mining theory, Monero. Yeah. It, maybe it waits 10 minutes, it waits 15 minutes, it waits mm-hmm. an hour, right, whatever. Um, and then it actually starts doing the mining thereafter, which uh, I would be interested in, and I'm sure there are a number of people that uh, do you know analysis that would be interested in actually going and downloading those containers and figuring out how they operate, because that's probably going to be the next major attack vector folks i mean it's going to be containers at some point it's yeah, already happened to you paul uh, yeah att- attackers are certainly oh very well aware and using the containerized infrastructure to do evil things and you know if i had to speculate if i were to create a container and may put a binary in there that's named like any other binary uh inside the container uh except when that binary runs it's mining m- mining cryptocurrency to the scan, type of scanning you would need would be to like validate that binary in some way or uh, do some kind of sandboxing approach. Like There's lots of approaches to do that, all of which have a cost on the other side as to how much scrutiny you're going to put uh, when you put apps in. Uh, but it's absolutely the same problem that Apple and Google and Microsoft and, and others have, where it, Chrome, right, where they're trying to vet these uh, add-ons. Yeah, yeah, so it's... It'll be uh, an ongoing problem, to say the least. This yeah. is not the last we've seen of this. <laughs> Certainly. Um, so the, the, this idea of putting a Docker container up that's been improved or modified or customized, is, is that, would you say, an imma- immature, at an immature stage, that there needs to be something additional added for vetting these things? Or is it a bad idea to do that at all? So honestly, it's actually fa- fairly common practice, right? So maybe you've got like the base. That doesn't mean it's a good idea, right? Well, and so that's just the thing, right? Is is it's figuring out the trust aspect associated with it. So um, open source software is another great example of this, right? Just because someone wrote an application and they posted it publicly and someone forked it and made edits, which do you trust, mm-hmm. the main one or the fork? And if you're trusting the fork. What sort of validation are you doing against the fork to make sure that it's not malicious? Um, so, so to a large degree, anything that makes it out onto Docker Hub, as I understand it, and we'd love to get, you know, any, if any of our listeners are from Docker and can get on the show to comment on this or can at least write us PSW at securityweekly.com, I'd be curious how it even made it past the, the Docker Hub checks, right? Because Yeah, Docker Hub has some kind of scanner. Did they build their own scanner or buy someone or use an open source one? They had some kind of, I forget the history, but they definitely had, I mean, this is container scanning 
uh, is, is mm -hmm. the is, is the issue because you know they're not being run, so they're just scanning whatever is potentially going to be hosted in Docker Hub, um, which mm -hmm. is no. I mean, that's a pretty big task because there's lots of container, uh, you know, repositories out there. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. The uh, the first lady has, uh, according to uh, Robert Graham, some bad advice uh, and takes it on <clears throat> point by point. Uh, this document was created. I believe with the help of the FTC to provide cybersecurity advice to the masses. Uh, and, you know, Robert goes through strong passwords, um, the HTTP versus HTTPS backups, and, and kind of picks apart the recommendations. It basically says we can do better, uh, you know, as a security community, as whoever's going to be making recommendations we have to be provide recommendations that are both easily understandable, but also effective as well and, and up to date with with the times uh, today. Yeah, I, I think the big thing is up to date, and uh, you know, I doubt if anybody that was terribly security savvy read these things and you know, wrote wrote these things in the first place. Obviously, right. the first lady didn't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, well, maybe she did. I don't know, but. Uh, you know, so it's more of a function of, of, I mean, even the idea of passwords, you know, do the people know that NIST has come out and, and you, know, throw, you know, tried to throw away the idea of, of reusable passwords or, change, you know, password changing every 90 days and, and, and length and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I read most of his article. I don't know if he ever got down to mentioning the fact that so many websites these days use multi-factor authentication and, and where does that come into play? So yeah, I, I think the the bottom line for this article and and Aradabab was uh, 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 nicer than he usually is. <laughs> I think. He was, uh, uh, you know. But the bottom line is, uh, you know, this should have been vetted by somebody that you know whose job it is uh, as a professional, maybe outside the government. I don't know. To, well, yeah, because sure the person that had that role in the government got fired, but you know. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, so the interesting thing is, though, I don't entirely disagree with the screenshot that Rob has put forward, which is use different passwords for different accounts. And that way, if a hacker gets into one, he can't get into the others. Uh, yeah. I mean, we all use uh, password, you know, vaults or, or what have you anyway. And we're all using strong randomly generated passwords that are all unique. So I don't see anything wrong with that advice, quite frankly. I mean, maybe there's stuff in the preamble to that that specific highlight that he has in the screenshot that seems to be wrong, but to me, that actually seems pretty good. Well, I think today it's just difficult <clears throat> to provide advice on passwords um, it, it just because, well, so many people have opinions, so many sites have a different risk level, um, and there's things like two-factor authentication and password vaults that have to uh, fly into it, which you also have to take into account the audience that's consuming that. So I think the advice is different for really every every user. So to have this document be its goal, be large sweeping recommendations that are going to hit the majority of you know people in the world, I, I, it's ambitious at best, right? I, I don't think any. Well, and I wasn't to the the purpose of this coming from the first lady. It had something to do with young people as they're coming of age, sure, and getting on the internet, which you know happens, frankly, before they know how to read. <laughs> at this point. True, but uh, you know, so 
you know, either that's, uh, you know, as an audience, as, as a base of type of user, that's either a very uh, high level, uh, you know, beginner type of, they don't have a lot of complexity in terms of where they're going. And so a lot of this advice is probably way over their head anyway. On the other hand, it's the type of users that, and I think the intent was let's start them young, train them, sure. train them right, you know, start early. And 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 who's more vulnerable than young people, mm-hmm. you know, minors on the internet? And so it's a it's a very important class of users to try to protect. So you know, a, a for a for ambition or, or intention. Uh, they 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 fall down in the execution. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the smart lock that can be hacked in seconds. Now, when I, I first, <laughs> there was a fingerprint one that, that was pretty bad. I've also I think I've seen an advertisement for this particular lock um, that <clears throat> it allows. I think you unlock the lock with your smartphone. It has some kind of pairing uh, to your smartphone. The major flaw in its design, and I quote, is the unlock key for the device is easily discovered because it's generated from the Bluetooth low energy ID that is broadcast by the lock. Anyone with a smartphone would be able to pick up this key if they scan for Bluetooth devices when close to the the brand. It's called TapLock. Using this key that's broadcast in the air in conjunction with commands broadcast by the TapLock would let attackers successfully open anyone they found said the research so keith is this broken authentication or broken cryptography authentication in this case this is a replay attack yeah good answer, good answer. broken implement <laughs> implementation yep but who would ever do that right clearly these hey, developers can you touch on uh, in this case I don't know what else you want to say about that other than no, oops. not yeah. Just I thought it was interesting because I saw those locks advertised and I'm like, someone's going to hack that. And then usually when I say that, uh, you know, a, a certain amount of time goes by, and then I cover the article on the show, and I'm like, oh look, someone hacked that. Right. Hey, well, wasn't this? You, I don't know. If, go ahead, Keith. Uh, I was going to say, didn't someone also show that you can basically like pop off the front of it? Yes. And, like there was like, a physical. There was a physical attack as well. Yeah, and then it's like you've got access to all the internals. Like, there's there's nothing stopping you at that point. Right. I mean, that requires more time and a, a, arguably a little more effort, right? Uh, and you have to physically be messing with the lock. Uh, this attack is a little more concerning when we think about the use case for this lock. That basically, I can just you know use an a, a app on my phone or some kind of technology wirelessly to derive the key and pop the lock open. That's a little more concerning for me. Yeah. So to that end, it, in my mind, it's like, OK, look, if the physical attack is two seconds, pop the front and then, you know, run something connected to it. That's probably going to be the way that the spies would actually attack it as opposed to waiting for you to unlock it, capturing that and replaying it back later. Like, no, I don't think they have to wait for you. Uh, so it says that the uh, Bluetooth low energy ID is broadcast by the lock. My my assumption is that's always being broadcast by the lock, not necessarily when the person goes to unlock it. Although I didn't well, get it. It makes I, me wonder, can can you set this uh, key to be your own key and, and it broadcasts whatever it is, or is it built into the device? 
Yeah, it's, my, you know, it's supposed to be transparent to the user. The way I understood it, yeah, the the low energy ID is probably similar to like a MAC address would be on an Ethernet adapter. Yeah, which makes me wonder if it's unique for device. Yeah, frankly, most likely, but nah. nah. I, my guess is it's probably universal, nah. or it's it's in batches, right? It could be in batches. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I think of that more as a MAC address. Anyway, Jeff, you wanted to jump to a different story. Yeah, I was uh, interested in, in talking a little bit about Android phones. Uh, you had an article there about mm. uh, which which phones regularly get security updates. And and my question uh, to our esteemed panel here, uh, and I don't know how much either of you guys deal with Android phones. So I'm currently working on a project that involves Android phones and, wait for it, PCI. And, oh, God. Please so, stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of you know one of the PCI requirements for systems is that you have some sort of hardening standard or build standard or configuration standard that you secure the device. And I've been looking for something like that for Android, and I haven't been able to find one. So it's really a, an appeal to to our listening audience. If anybody knows of any kind of hardening standard configuration guidelines. You know, I've obviously Googled this and found the typical ways that, you know, you, you, you know, you protect your phone as a consumer, but the use case here is more like there's very, the, the desire is to have very, very limited functionality on this mobile device other than an application that's being loaded on, and it's intended for even the user of the device to only have access to that one application and nothing else. And it turns out there's tons of ways to gain access. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, features. They're features. Most of them are features. <coughs> they are, know, like the debugger. Yeah. yeah, the 5555. Yeah, five, the five, debugging five tools, part. the developer right. tools, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, that, you know, I, I don't know what you want to say about yeah, the article I don't, itself. Yeah, I don't know if anything, Jeff, off the top of my head. I know that, you know, there are some basic things you can do in Android to help secure it. Uh, I, I do also believe that very specific use cases like that, that rank security really high, or even if you're going to put, like, let's say you're a financial institution and you develop an app for Android and you're going to release that in the marketplace, a lot of third-party security solutions vendors uh, exist to help you apply security to your app so you can be more secure. Uh, I would say yep. that the specific use case, I would highly recommend that in addition to all the things you can do in Android, which in my opinion are pretty limited to lock it down security-wise, that you're going right, to want right. some third-party technology to run on top of that to ensure that you're basically swimming in shark-infested waters and you need some other kind of protection other than like yep. the amount of water in between you and the shark. Well, you know, it's yep. funny. I think there was a... I, I can almost confirm it. I'm like 99% sure here. Uh, there was a tweet by Space Rogue... Uh, two years ago, three years ago, where he said, look, there are two kinds of people when it comes to mobile devices, those that can afford iPhones and those that can't. And that's effectively <laughs> like the security model is if you can afford an iPhone, you're probably okay. Everybody else, you're in shark-infested waters. Like, yeah, you might as I don't well. know. I, I would argue that the iPhone is still in shark-infested waters, although the major improvement we heard about this week was the USB protections, data mode uh, protections that they have uh in, in for iPhones but uh yeah and, and certainly if you i think that 
where space rogue, space rogue kind of missed the very small subset of the population where I put myself, where you have an Android phone, but you buy the one from Google and you get all of the updates and, and you actually apply them, first of all. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, that's, that's a, a much smaller use case, though. Not everyone likes to, you know, go out and buy the phone outright and, and keep up to date. It's mostly a nerd activity, so I don't think it comes up on the radar if you think about how many, outside of that crowd, how many Android and iPhone devices exist in the world uh, and are in use today. So, Six billion, you five know, billion, yeah, a lot. Like <laughs> a lot, a lot. Well, and I was looking at, you know, just trying to figure out, you know, just how many vulnerabilities are there. And I, I found some website that charted how many vulnerabilities have been reported on Android over the last 10 or 15 years. And then I also was looking up, yeah, it might have been the CVE website, some offshoot of that. Um, but I was also looking up iPhone. And the first thing I looked at, there was like one re- vulnerability reported in like the life of iPhone. I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. But then I like kept digging, and then I went and found it. I want to say it was iPhone OS or something like that. And then it looked a lot more like the Android, where there's been lots of vulnerabilities reported over the years. So, so I, I know, think it the all metric depends on what you though. What's that? The, the metric is the cost of the vulnerability per type of phone. You, you go to find a, a remote root execution or remote root vulnerability in an iPhone, it's over a million dollars to go and buy or sell one of those to, you know, a gray market vendor. Find that on an Android, it's 200K, maybe, if you're lucky, maybe 25K. Yeah. So So we may not know, and the whole thing is you may not know if there are serious vulnerabilities in the iOS platform because they might not report those to Apple. True. Which begs the question, and I, sh- I should know the answer to this, but are there bug bounties for Androids and for for uh, iPhones? So this is the bug bounty uh, show. So I'm glad you <laughs> asked that question, Jeff. It's, it's kind so, of a theme. It is. There are for iOS. Um, now it's it's somewhat limited. I believe it's a private invitation by Apple, uh, and the requirements out of that are actually pretty strong in terms of um, they want basically remote vulnerabilities against the iPhone itself. There are kind of different scales of, of payment based on the kind of vulnerabilities you find. For Android, I believe there is. I, I don't know 100%. I think that Google has something for its Pixel, but I don't know that it has something for all of the different uh, you know iterations of right. Android that exist for the different companies. Um, so that, unfortunately, I don't, I don't have an answer to. Well, and I mean, Android is also naturally a much larger attack surface because it's used on a number of different devices because Android is a much more open platform. You know, iOS only runs on Apple-made devices. That's true. Android runs yeah. on, I mean, I've got, you know, there's a million options for Android TVs, devices, they all run Android. I bought a, a music player this week that runs Android, and it's, you know, their own, you know, uh, version of Android, so uh, you know, I think naturally there's going to be a lot more vulnerabilities. It may be Android, but it may be a manufacturer-specific implementation of it. Okay. Well, I appreciate it, and if any of our listeners have any, you know, insights or ideas of how to lock down, uh, you know, uh, from a programmatic perspective in Android, uh, let us know. Uh, a librarian has sued Equifax over the 2017 breach, and she won 600 
dollars. Now she did state that, with- that the small claims uh, case was a lot more about raising awareness than it was actually getting some type of payout. That, that's probably more than they would have got if they had joined a class action lawsuit anyway. So true. Good for them. True. And Can it wasn't so much about the mishandling of data as much as it was the time that was uh, ensued as her parents, I believe, passed away and were part of the breach. And, and that was that was part of the legal case. But again, I th- believe they put that case together essentially to to raise awareness. Hence us talking about it on, on the show. Well, so the... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Keith. So here's the thing, right? If all, I don't know, what was it, 180 million, 200 million people were to go and, you know, go to small claims court, point to this case for $600 uh, against Equifax, and then all of them independently bring suits, imagine how much that would cost Equifax if they did that. Right. And quite frankly, I think that people should. Again, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a financial advisor, and I don't pretend to be one on TV or this podcast, but... Or and I'm not a le- I'm not a lawyer, right? Like that's that's the biggest thing. But that's a much bigger sum of money than otherwise. Uh, right. So, so go ahead, and that's sort of related, sort of related to what I was going to say, just in terms of you know this was a civil suit, which is you're trying to get money for some wrong that was done to you, and, and what's very typical because uh, you know reading through the article, I think she she was asking for five grand. I think that was the right she was, number. Yes. And she and she was awarded $600, which is very uh much the tradition and the precedent that's mm-hmm. in civil suits is you you sue for some sort of amount and you get some percentage of that amount. That that's very common and very often it's an out of court settlement and very often it's uh you know if, if it's like a personal injury case it's being handled by your insurance company. Right. So you know, I wouldn't get hung up on the numbers, whether they were large or small or insignificant. As Keith said, you know, multiply that by all the victims, then it, it then it's substantial. And to raise the awareness, which is the claim of why she did this, you know, there there, you know, hopefully that's a deterrent if if there if that's a legitimate way to, for companies to go out and do security better. Uh, you know, this too could cost you six hundred dollars or six hundred dollars times. However, million uh, you know customers you have. I I want to ask you both. Did you uh, in the news this week? Uh, journalists were in Singapore, uh, you know, covering all the happenings that were happening between the U.S. and, and North Korea. <laughs> now the journalists, the, yeah, the interesting thing was the journalists in Singapore. Uh, hopefully, I got all of that correct. Um, were handed these journalist kits. Apparently it was like, I think the, the thing I read earlier this week was it was 33 degrees Celsius or 94 point something degrees Fahrenheit. So it was really hot. Yep. So they got, you know, a, a bunch of stuff, a water bottle and some other stuff. But also they included in this kit for journalists, uh, which I believe was provided by North Korea, was, um, or maybe it was Sigma, I'm not sure. But they got these USB fans. I don't know if you guys have seen these. Yep. It's been a yes. Chosky yeah, yeah. giveaway at a lot of yep. conferences, right? It's got a USB yeah, I connector. Yeah, used to have one. They're, they're great. Yeah, you plug it into your, your phone, which I think is bad. Mm-hmm. More likely, I, would, I plug mine into my battery packs, right? Oh. You pl- plug it in there, and, and then you get a little fan. 
And uh, there was tons of news articles saying how there could be they some news articles called it spyware, which is pretty funny, but there could have been some kind of malicious payload on these USB devices. Now, what I want to ask our audience is, did anyone get a hold of one of these? Has anyone done the uh, analysis on it? Was it actually malicious or was this just everyone making the assumption that journalists would be uh, uh, victims of this attack? Uh, and largely the advice was not to plug this in, but I have not seen any evidence that there was anything malicious on here. And if any journalist listening or any security researcher listening, if you want to get together, you want to donate one of these to the security community, I think there's a lot of people that would sign up to happily uh, take a look and tell you if there's anything malicious on there and hopefully report back to the community because I think it's kind of interesting. Yeah, so and honestly, we'll I have a bug bounty of $600. There you go. Right? There you go. <laughs> I have not seen anyone uh, actually report vulnerabilities <clears throat> or exploits or anything related to these, whether they're Wi-Fi enabled or otherwise, uh, on these specific fans. But um, Paul, to your earlier comments about you know research, what they really need here is a USB condom, which only allows power to correct be devices, yes, and not data. Do you have one of those? I do. It's only uh, it's branded, if that's okay. It's branded but, with Bug Crowd, of course. It is, actually. <laughs> uh, Which, so like one so of many things. other uh, condoms, it only works if you use it. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So the, the interesting thing about USB condoms, though, is, is what it does is it, it, there's two kinds, right? There are kinds that... They are uh, ribbed and, and not ribbed. <laughs> sure. Flavored, uh, colored... Too. Um, but by ribbed, we mean uh, the kind that basically have a resistor on the other end of the data pins, which causes kind of like a negative pushback of the electricity uh, versus like having a dead pin, meaning like mm -hmm. the pin doesn't actually exist or connect. The difference here is a dead pin will still try to transmit data and the electricity will just kind of fade off of that dead pin. So you still, for every two steps forward or five steps forward, you're one step back, right? You're losing a little bit from the data attempting to push, whereas the resistor actually causes kind of a negative pushback of that energy. So you actually save electricity uh, mm. with the resistor being in place on those pins. Now, big question, Keith. Which type is your Bug Crowd branded USB condom? It is uh, the resistor type. Oh. So we, we, we're all about security. You and splurged. in this case, also awesome. saving you some energy. <laughs> uh, okay. Oh, cool story of the week is where I want to go next. I thought this story was absolutely fascinating. Uh, there was an Air Force officer who was missing for 35 years, apparently in December of 1983. Um, yep. Howard Hughes Jr., was officially listed as uh, as a deserter, right? Classified as Will, a... William William Howard Hughes Jr. Oh, sorry, did I say that wrong? Is yes, yeah. thank you, Jeff. William Howard Hughes Jr. Uh, officially classified as a uh, deserted from the U.S. Air Force uh, and was not heard from until recently. Where, what I'm told, and I had to use multiple articles to pull together. They all had kind of different pieces of the puzzle, and certainly. The, the puzzle is not complete. Um, so uh, let's see. He was known to his neighbors as Tim. However, he went by another name, Barry O'Bearn. And this was discovered. So the way, so the next logical question was, how does this guy get caught after 35 years of deserting from the U.S. Air Force? 
Apparently, it was a passport fraud investigation. Now, I'm not sure which U.S. government office or military guy, I guess in this case, it would be a government office that would uh, be investigating passport fraud. Or, it, or the other question is, were they looking for just passport fraud and uncovered this person who had deserted uh, the U.S. Air Force? Or were there is there a, another like group within the U.S. government that's looking for people who have deserted and went to passport fraud to maybe determine that? I'm not sure the order. Um, but eventually, so after the passport fraud investigation, and I'm not sure who which office conducted that, it said the U.S. Department of State's Diplomatic Security Service interviewed an individual claiming to be Barry O'Bearn. Uh, after confronted with inconsistencies about his identity, the individual admitted his true name was William Howard Hughes Jr., and then they knew that they had the person. I'm not sure if they were looking for this person or in the passport fraud. It kind of led them into finding uh, this person. Now, in during the Cold War, Hughes was involved in classified planning and analysis of NATO's control, command, and communication surveillance systems during the Cold War. And he specialized in radar surveillance. And so the speculation is, was this person feeding information to, uh, to Russia at the time? Uh, you know, d- did this person flip or did he just get frustrated and leave? Uh, we really don't know. I think it's kind of fascinating uh, about how like you would find someone like this like if you were looking for that person like people who have deserted the military for over 30 years like is there a team of people looking for these people or uh are they just found through other means i don't know i thought that was that was kind of if anyone knows how that that mm-hmm. works it'd be pretty i think it's pretty neat the the question that i have is how do they even I mean, the records, right? So 30 years ago, in terms of the records and the databases or yeah. the mainframes that this must have existed in, like, that they Careful still what have you say here somewhere. <laughs> so, so treading lightly, um, the systems that these would have been programmed in, that they could be so readily searchable by modern-day technology to be flagged and then ultimately identified in what seemed to be a very fast or, or rapid manner... Um, is interesting to me. So it tells me either that they've taken the data and they've migrated it to a service that can then be searched faster, which wouldn't surprise me. I mean, or given- they didn't search at all. Like William Hughes just said, hey, I, I'm, I'm William Hughes. And they're like, oh, interesting. Like they didn't have to go search for that in a database. Like they just knew, oh, you he told them basically I was the one that deserted 35 years ago. Right, right. So maybe they yeah. have a list of deserters that they're actually looking for actors. And then I think of like the the guy at the end of the Raiders of a Lost Ark that goes into the room and goes into the 1983 U.S. Air Force uh, deserted file <laughs> that's in like a row right. somewhere uh, and pulled out, you know, his paper file. I'm like, oh, yeah, that is you. Yeah, yeah maybe. so Keith, to answer, to answer your larger question, uh, you know, old data throughout time that has been cataloged in hard copy or in the early days of other forms of magnetic storage, uh, you know, people like to update that to modern media because of the automated search capability. Uh, yep. you, know, you know, whether it's a good idea or not, people would much rather have, a, have a, an automated way of searching uh, using a database or using, you know, these days it's Googling, that type of thing. So, uh, whether it ever should have been done or not, you know, you can rest assured that all the data from the past is somewhere out on the internet these days. Uh, to the Thank larger question of how they, 
Yeah. So the larger question of how they found the guy, I would suspect it, it was just a, a cascade of little things here and there. I doubt if they were actively looking for him. Right. Uh, I'm curious as to what they're doing with them. You know, you know, they've detained him, obviously, or, or apparently. Uh, are they are they going to try to push him for court martial? Do they? Uh, my guess is they want to interview him and try to get to the bottom of why he deserted and and did he compromise any right. secrets, which he'll naturally volunteer, uh, <laughs> and, and that'll settle right. things, and he'll go back to his life. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and I'm not sure how that process works. You know, if he's. Yeah. It depends on what he's going to be tried with, right? I'm assuming there's some kind of military tribunal. Is that the right term for that? I think so. He was Air Force. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he'll get court-martialed uh, for desertion, uh, right. in theory. And Is I don't there know a, statute a statute of limitations, of limitations on court-martialing yeah. for desertion? I was thinking the same thing. I don't, I don't believe that there is, which is why they were detaining him in the first place. Um, you know, so there's probably just whatever the punishment is for desertion. Which you know, back in in the Revolutionary War, you would just get shot, probably too in the Civil War. Uh, you, you know, it, you know, it, it wasn't active warfare in '83. I don't think when was Grenada Korean Grenada War. Grenada? Korean War was technically still active, or not active, but still yeah, in existence. Yeah, no, 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 no. Well, it depends yeah, on also just... what they try him with too. If they find, if they deem him to be an enemy of the state, his fate could be much different than if he's just right. Look at it as a there's deserter, a right? there's a big difference between desertion and and he would be charged with treason and, and pretty amazing uh, how uh, he was able to hide for 35 years under assumed identities as well. Yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting. It, 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 that is a cool story for this week. Bob. Yes, I and I like I said I don't know if I can come up with a cool story every week, but I thought that was a cool story that was even somewhat related to uh, uh, information security and, and hacking certainly. Uh, the next story under ridiculous stories is, is, is not. It really is, makes me question if physics work differently in Pennsylvania as a Pennsylvania <laughs> driver allegedly defecates on another man in a road raid incident. Uh, the, a man on Friday allegedly defecated on a fellow driver after the two engaged in a road rage argument. I'm not sure how. I don't really want to think about how that might work. The way that yeah, it, it, it was a it was a woman that defecated. <laughs> it was a woman. Okay. Now, what was interesting <laughs> oh, that, ex- that explains it. They referenced like if you're into this story, you might be into a story where I believe it was in in Canada, where a woman defecated in a Tim Hortons and then threw the stuff at the people that that worked there because that she would, flung poo. Is that what flung, you mean to tell she me? She flung. She flung poo. Yes. Yes. <laughs> interesting. Anyway. Yeah, because they didn't uh, let her use the bathroom. That was why she was flinging poo. Oh, jeez. You know. Anyway. Wow. Um, anyway, moving on. Maybe she was seeing if it <laughs> stuck. Uh, so researchers studied 160 million memes and found most of them come from two websites. Uh, one of them being a subreddit, which is like r underscore Donald or something like that. And another one coming from a political uh, channel, I guess it, you call it on 4chan slash pol. Uh, and after a very extensive study, we have this really useful information now that memes, most memes, uh, originate from those two 
particular sites in case you're do they do they really originate or are they being harvested and and collected in in two major repositories not sure it'd be interesting to uncover who is creating all of the memes maybe there are a group of individuals that are responsible for posting it on these two sites who knows so it seems that there's a gravitational force of these two sites to aggregate memes together to take over the world with memes i don't know I, maybe I, maybe it's russia and china and they're getting together on a meme war maybe but world war three they memes. split all the cat memes uh, equally across the two sides that's right that's right indeed cat memes are important to the health mm-hmm. of the internet anyway i don't really have any other interesting stories uh for <laughs> you unless you you guys have anything nope i'm good nope i'm good i mean we covered the gamut we absolutely we did. did. We went through them all. We caught them all. We Pokemon. did. Well, <laughs> thank you everyone for listening and watching this edition of Paul Security Weekly. We will see everyone next time over and out. Yeah.